Good morning. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, we do have some in the back. Jeremiah 18. good to hear the pages turning. Work it out. You'll find it is in the Old Testament. The other, you know, two-thirds of the Bible there. All right, Jeremiah 18. And it, uh, it, has, been, it has been a fair bit of time since uh, the, uh, the last time I, I sort of filled in for Pastor Scott and shared. <laughs> I, pre- I appreciate the energy. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so I, I was actually talking with Eric about this earlier this morning. It's difficult to try to, to try to capture context every four or five months, right? Like once every five months we're in Jeremiah and it's like, how much time do I spend trying to like recap? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not really going to try to do that. Um, we're not going to continue to rehash the history of everything every single time I do this. So, uh, this week, uh, we're in chapter 18. I'll be sharing again next week. Uh, and then Pastor Scott will be back from his trip. So, um, so we're, in, we're in chapter 18, and I'm not going to go into detail about many of the things we've discussed to this point, but I do think it's useful to at least capture in your mind and carry with you certain aspects of the nature of the letter or the, the, the prophecy itself. And remember that Jeremiah came in at the very end of the nation of Israel's decline. Okay? He's the last voice before they go into total Captivity. The northern kingdom has already been taken captive. The southern kingdom is hanging on by its fingernails, trying not to be subjugated by the Babylonian Empire. And this was all predicated because God had told them faithfully for about 460 years that this was going to happen. If they turn their back on him, if they reject him, if they reject his word, they reject his law, then the consequence of those choices would be borne on a national level by going into captivity. And so if you read any of the prophets and you read it in parallel with uh, like the history books, like First and Second Kings, you'll start to line up the voice of the prophets with the condition of the people, and you'll see that God has faithfully sent his messengers to declare this reality. And so Jeremiah is the last of a long line of great people and men that God has raised up to proclaim his truth, and he is laboring at this ministry, seeking to call the people to a place of repentance, a place of change, and unfortunately, he already knows because God kind of gave him the insight that they were going to reject his message. So in a way, he's being faithful knowing that the outcome and the fruit, so to speak, of his ministry will be very limited to none. The people will actually continue to reject the Lord. And so we get here, and we're in chapter 18, and Jeremiah has uh, been faithfully proclaiming the truth. He has used various illustrations that God has called him to use to demonstrate the idea. Uh, You've probably heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so God would use these interesting metaphors or demonstrations. He actually had Jeremiah buy a new piece of clothing and then bury it next to the Euphrates River. 
And then many days later, he went back and pulled it out of the ground. And of course, it was spoiled and super dirty. And he had Jeremiah put it on and walk around and then tell people basically the way this clothing looks on me and the way that this clothing has been destroyed is kind of what you've done in your relationship with the Lord. So he's visualizing before people the truth that sometimes is hard to capture. And so chapter 18 is another one of these moments where Jeremiah will be using um, really uh, drawing lesson from and insight from uh, an observation that he makes as he's faithfully doing what God has called him to do. And so if you're not familiar with this passage, you may, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you may be familiar with the, with the metaphor itself because it's, it's not a particularly uh, new one. So we'll start in verse 1, we'll read through Uh, verse 10, and then we'll just start tackling um, probably the first half of this section. So it says, Jeremiah 18, 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Verse 5, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. Classic imagery potter and the clay. If you're familiar uh, with this, great. If you're not, uh, we're going to explore it a little bit. Um, Because I'll be preaching again next week, we'll see. This may become sort of a two-part message. Um, But my hope and prayer, actually, as we sort of sit here and and seek to really be instructed from God's Word this morning, is that we come away from this initially um, with a tremendous, renewed depth of appreciation and reverence for the greatness of God. And our hearts are deepened in our tremendous knowledge of and respect for and awe of who God is and his nature as it's displayed here. There are applications to this which, as it was immediately proclaimed, was on a national level, but it applies to the individual. And so when we go through this, um, we'll make some observations along the way. But again, my hope is that we start to focus our, our mind on and we, our attention on this image of the potter in the clay, and we're going to focus primarily on the potter himself, because Jesus, not Jesus, God, in verse 6 says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God identifies himself in the type or in the, in the picture that's being painted here for us as the potter. And I want us to think about this. I want us to see things here that I hope 
will draw us to just a tremendous appreciation for the grace of God and the overwhelming mercy of God and the nature of God in his hope and in his redemption for those who have truthfully erred. A couple of things that jump out immediately. One is this. Uh, it's not uncommon as we fellowship amongst ourselves to ask the question, how can I discern the will of God? This isn't the point of the message, but I just want to make an observation because there's something that jumps out to me in the first few verses that I think is useful for us to consider. You'll notice in verse 1 it says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and the word was, arise and go down to the potter's house. And then he says, and there, there, at the potter's house, I will let you hear my words. And then you read verse 5, and it says, then the word of the Lord came to me. The only link between the two is that he obeyed. It was a simple act of obedience. And in obeying the first thing that God said for him to do, he discovered the second thing that God needed him to know. And as you are pondering your own futures, for many of you, as you have sort of asking and seeking, what is the will of God for my life? I can assure you that the most relevant question is not place, location, circumstance, people. It's simply, are you prepared to obey? Because if you're prepared to obey, you will know. Jeremiah didn't debate. He didn't say, God, I'll go to the potter's house based on the uh, conditions that if I'm going there, you're going to give me a first-class airfare. Um, I'm going to have three square meals promised to me. Um, and then when I get there, what, I, what exactly is the message? Because if I don't like the message, I'm not sure I really want to go. What if I don't like the potter? What if he makes weird pottery? Like, he didn't, he didn't debate. He didn't enter into a negotiation with God. God said, hey, Jeremiah, you want to know the next thing? Then here's the first thing you need to do. And he just did the first thing. And then in doing the first thing, he discovered the next thing. And so I share that with you simply because I think we get caught up in this theory that somehow discerning the will of God is this great mystery, and that he shrouds it in like eternal darkness, and it's like this hard thing to figure out. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus says his Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. He delights for you to know. Someday you may parent. I'm parenting. I want my kids to know my will because I want them to do it. So I don't keep it a mystery. I let them know. It's not like a game. I'm like, hey, this is what I want you to do. Do this. And then I'll text them to remind them. And um, multiple times, like, hey, this, this is a thing I want you to do, right? And, th and then when they do that thing, then we can go on to the next thing, right? So it's not, it's not like this crazy game. Like God's not like up there trying to manipulate, you know, the whole experience of our life to try to make us, you know, go through unnecessary suffering. That's not his nature. So anyway, i just share that with you because I think it's useful as you uh, plot along in your relationship with the Lord that oftentimes really the issue is not an issue of understanding, it's an issue of willingness and obedience. And when you're willing and obedient, it's amazing to me, and I'm speaking from experience, when I stop wrestling with God about it, it's funny how everything just falls into place. When my mind is still like not settled, my spirit's not content to just be obedient, it's funny how murky everything gets. So nonetheless, Jeremiah faithfully goes, he's obedient, and as he goes, he goes down to the potter's house, and he's going with the intent that when he gets there, he'll hear God's word. And so when he gets there, it says he went down to the potter's house, and there the potter was working at his wheel. Um, interesting facts about pottery. Handmade pottery, the art of making pottery, has basically not changed for like 20,000 years. Like the methodology of people today making pottery in this community is still essentially the same as the way that this potter was making his pottery then. The only difference is really the technique, or not the technique, but the tool, the wheel itself, right? We have 
electricity, we have you know, machinery, the wheel can be spun um, through those means, but in this period of history, the potter's wheel was nothing sophisticated. It was large oval stone or circular stone. It would often have a single rod. It would be connected to another stone that was around floor level. And the potter would literally stand at his wheel. He would lean in. The wheel would be slightly tilted on the stick. And he would kick the lower wheel. And the weight of the lower wheel would start to spin and would make the top wheel spin. And so the potter was standing there, two hands on the clay. And with his foot, he was kicking this lower wheel, and that would cause the wheel to spin, and in the spinning of the wheel, he would begin to form his clay. Now this is like precursor to industrialization, so obviously this is like the advent of mass production. Before the potter's wheel, everything was literally made by hand, and so this is a little bit further along, and they're down there, and they would make these objects, whatever they may be. And the potter is working at his wheel. It's often true that when you get to the potter's house, there would be a potter's field next to the house. The field would often be where they would stage the clay for use. And the method of getting clay back then was a little bit more tricky. And they would often have to harvest certain soils, mix them together, put them in these large troughs, put a lot of water on it, and let it soak for quite a long time. And then they would pull it up out of that, remove all the impurities, the rocks, all the, all the things that would make it difficult to work with. And then they would actually take it and they'd trample it by foot. And they'd start working the clay down. And they'd try to smooth it out, remove all the impurities and imperfections, mound it up, and then they let it sit and season for a length of time. And eventually it had the right elasticity. And then that was what they would start to work with to shape. And then after they shaped it, they put it back in the potter's field. They let it dry out, harden. And then from that point, they would use it for whatever its intended purpose was. I know you didn't come here this morning to learn about pottery, but the imagery is interesting, and I, and I hope that it starts to give us an insight into the nature and character of who God is. First of all, we see that the potter was working at his wheel. He was actively working at his wheel. He was making stuff. He was producing something. When the potter begins, what does he begin with? An unformed lump of clay. Isn't that a fair assessment? He has this chunk of clay on the wheel and at that point, the clay is an indistinguishable mound of clay. That's just what it is. The only person who knows what that clay is going to become is the potter. And you could argue that the potter in his mind already, because of his creative ability and his skill, he's going to make that exactly what he knows it needs to be. He has the future in mind. He knows what the clay is going to become. And so he's the one working it at the wheel. The clay itself has no idea what it's going to become. I mean, to stretch the analogy too far would be absurd, but obviously it's clay. Play-Doh. Doesn't think, doesn't know, it doesn't have perspective. But the potter knows. He sees what it's going to be before it is that thing, and he begins to work at it to try to bring that reality to bear upon the piece of clay. If they're making smaller objects with a spinning wheel, the potter can actually be, make multiple objects out of one lump of clay. So as he's forming it, he forms the first one, and the clay is starting to become more like cone-shaped. Right? It's starting to rise up. And then they'll actually spin it, and they'll actually be able to remove like cups, for example. And they can pull a cup off the top, and then they can continue to work and make another cup and another cup. So he'll get multiple vessels out of a single piece of clay. But nonetheless, the point I'm making is the potter fully understands what the clay is intended to be. He's the one who has the ability to turn the clay into that thing. 
And that's what he's doing. When Jeremiah shows up, this is just an ordinary potter. Chapter 19 tells us he's probably in the Hinnom Valley, which is nobody actually knows geographically specific where it's located to Jerusalem, but it's in one of the valleys outside of Jerusalem. And this guy is just working at his craft. If anybody here, just curious, because when I was homeschooled growing up and my parents wanted me to be very well-rounded, so I actually took clay and ceramic classes and the, the crown achievement of my success is I made an army tank, um, which looked like a box with a stick sticking out of it. So it was not a really good outcome. And uh, they quickly canceled those experiences for me. Um, they're like, this is not his future. Um, has anybody worked with clay? Like actually like worked with clay, done any kind of like clay work? I see a couple heads. Yes, we have one. Actually, you're probably good at it. Um, is it clean? Is it, is it a clean thing to work with clay? Has anybody seen an actual professional potter making clay? You guys seen that? That guy come out clean? And he's covered in the clay. He like gets into it and like he's literally like holding the mound of clay and he's spinning and he's like shaping, he's using his forearms, his upper arms, his chest, and he's forming that thing into whatever his mind has conceived it to be. And he is completely covered in the material. By the time you get done, the guy is dripping with water, the clay is all over him, he's filthy, he's like almost connected to, in some way, the clay itself. And so this potter is just there working at his wheel. He's spinning stuff, and he's covered in clay, I have no doubt. No air conditioning, probably hot. He's probably sweating, he's a craftsman. He's making stuff for his livelihood. So he's hard at work at this job, and he's trying to produce something. And as he's doing that, it tells us in verse 4, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. So spoiled is a translation in the ESV, which is what I'm reading. Your Bible may say the word marred. It may use the word destroyed or ruined. But as the potter is shaping, as he's making this into something that he intends it to be, his hands are on it and he's working it. He's covered in it and the clay gives way at his hand and it starts to collapse. It falls apart. The clay doesn't hold up its shape, right? Let's imagine, I don't know what he's making, probably not a coffee cup. So he's probably making some vessel of some variety. And as he's making it, he's getting it more into shape. He's getting closer to what he intends. And along the way, as Jeremiah is looking through the door, I don't know where he's standing, kind of weird, just shows up at this guy's workshop watching him throw clay. And as he's observing, the clay is spoiled in the potter's hand. The vessel crumbles. It falls apart. Notice it was not by the potter's hand. The potter did not ruin the clay. The potter was forming the clay, and the clay was marred. It was ruined in his hand. At this moment, I want you to realize, and I want you to think about an alternate reading of this passage. And I want us to think about what it doesn't say next. We know what it does say, because we just read it a few minutes ago. But I want you to think about what it does not say next. So, and the vessel was making of clay, was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he took it and he threw it away. Does it say that? No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that as the potter was forming the clay, and when the clay was marred and ruined in his hand, he discarded it, and he just started to work with the next fresh piece of clay. It doesn't say that. And I, interestingly enough, I had written a word down, and I, I try to take notes. It was kind of helter-skelter. 
But I was talking with Pastor Eric earlier this morning, and he used the word disposable, which was fascinating because I had written a single word down on my piece of paper, a piece of paper, and the word was disposability. And I was just like, how cool is that? That God would bring to bear sort of a confirmation of ideas. And here's the, here's the point I'm making. And I think this is a, something I want us to kind of reflect on this morning, and I pray collectively we think through as uh, ultimately we get to the point of just exalting in the greatness of who God is. The clay was marred in his hand. It was ruined. It was destroyed. It was no longer able to be the thing that he intended it to be. And instead of disposing of it completely and being like, worthless clay, I have literally thousands of pounds more out in my field ready to go. I'll just start with a fresh lump. He takes the broken, marred, ruined thing that was no longer going to be what he had originally intended, and he makes it into something else, something useful, something beautiful, something beneficial. He reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. He took that which was ruined, and he made it into something good. And I want us to hang out here for a minute because this is the heart of the gospel and this is the heart of God. He takes the things that are broken and ruined in his hand and he turns them into something else that is good. I want you to think about this. Our culture has increasingly created disposable things that we just use once and throw away. I'm not here to knock it. I'm not, I'm not, it is what it is. I mean, we're using paper plates out, in this, uh, out there. So, like, I mean, we're already part of the problem, I guess. But we don't think about it as much anymore. Something gets a chip, a rip, a small tear, a slight imperfection. And our, our mind probably goes to, it's time to replace it, time to get a new one. Let's get rid of this thing. It's broken. It's failing. It's whatever. And we are quick to discard, to throw away, to move on to the next new thing. But as we see the imagery of this passage, God is speaking to a people that he had faithfully called for 460 years since the king started in Saul and ends in Zedekiah. And he had been faithful. If you go even back further into their history, and if you're a good Bible student, you'll remember what Moses encountered when he was with the people in the wilderness. And Moses was there leading them out of Egypt. And the people were complaining about God's provision. And God got frustrated. I mean, I don't know if that makes a bad connection. I'm not trying to blaspheme God, but like he expresses to Moses his frustration with the heart of his people. And he said to Moses, I'm going to start a whole nother group. Let's get rid of this one. And Moses appeals to the character of God. He says, "Ah, if you do that, you've tied your, your very... Uh, glory and character and righteous claims and promises to this people. You can't start afresh. You got to hang on to these guys. And so God's like, ah. <laughs> he probably didn't do that. <laughs> I do that. I'm quick to discard people. I'm quick to be like, man, this person's irritating. This person's a problem. This person is broken. This person's got issues. This is really irritating. And I think sometimes we're quick to dispose of relationships, dispose of people, dispose of situations. I also find it interesting that the potter was working at his wheel. If we want to extend this idea a little bit to our own personal formation in Christ, isn't it fascinating? The wheel spins and spins, but the clay literally goes nowhere. It's constantly in motion, going nowhere. It's in one spot, 
spinning around over and over and over. If the clay could talk, it's like, yeah, I've seen this wall and this wall and this wall and this wall a thousand times. And I'm going nowhere and I'm just doing this. You ever feel like you're stuck? Life is mundane. I'm telling you, as I get older, I'll be 40 this year. As I get older, I, I celebrate the grace of God in the mundane realities of life. I appreciate that many of you are wide-eyed young people that are looking for an adventure. God bless, go take over the world. I'm just telling you, so much amazing things happen as God forms his character of Jesus in your heart in the mundane realities of the dailiness of life. This clay is going literally nowhere. I'm like, I'm stuck in, I literally, we're having a conversation. We're stuck in Ithaca. Ithaca! It's gray, it's cold. You go on the internet, you're like, it's warm in a lot of other places. I'd love to be there. My wife's in Miami right now. I'm like, got the wrong ticket. I should have gone. We've been in Ithaca for going on 10 years. Some of you are never going to live even half that long here. And yet in those 10 years, like sometimes people are like, man, what brought you here? I'm like, I don't know. God led us to come here. Like, what do you do here? That's a great question. I think I just live my life here. Um, nothing other than just trying to be obedient to the first thing God told me and waiting for the next thing that he tells me to do. But in the process of being here for 10 years, I can say because of the greatness of God and not anything to do with me, I'm just the piece of clay that he's forming. God has done a work and he's working his character into who I am. And he's working his character into you wherever you are. And you may be stuck in that sort of simple rotation of, oh, it's the same things every day. Got to go do this. Got to go to this. Got to go to this job Monday through Friday, whatever your hours are, your class schedules, your commitments. It's in those daily things as the potter's simply working at his wheel that he produces the thing that he intends for you to be. God knows what he's intending you to be. You and I probably don't actually know what God's intended us to ultimately be. The beauty is we have a God who's faithful and committed and, and he's going to see it through to the end. And he's not going to dispose of us. And to the hope of this, when, we, when we're in this journey of God shaping us, whether it's the mundane realities of life, whether it is on some wild adventure, uh, the vessel he was making was spoiled in his hand. And I want to visit this idea because on your way of seeking to walk with the Lord, you may ultimately make some really tragic and terrible decisions. The truth is you may. You may ultimately make choices in life that are not really aligned with God's best for you. It could be sin in your life. That's exactly the image that Jeremiah is evoking as he shares this with the people. He's like, hey, look, God called you to be a separate people unto himself, a light to the Gentiles and to all nations that through you, the greatness of, the, of, of God's glory could be known. He intended to make you, not because of anything significant about you necessarily, but simply because he chose you to be so, and he was going to reveal himself through you as a nation, and yet you've rejected him. I mean, the entire appeal of every prophet is, why have you rejected God and walked away from the one who formed you and made you and gave you purpose and being? And so as God was shaping them as a nation, they were marred in his hands. Something in that clay caused them to be unmoldable in the hand of the potter, and it fell apart. And the potter does not discard the clay, he doesn't throw it away. He reworks it. It's perhaps cliche, but God is the God of second chances. If you could imagine yourself in this moment, you imagine yourself, you're living through your life, you're on this trajectory, you're promised a certain number of years, right? You don't even know the number of breaths you're going to get. I don't know my number. 
you're living life, you're moving along. And you may find along the way that things happen, life happens, drifts can happen, your spiritual drift can occur. I think Pastor Scott visited that in Hebrews when he talked about being anchored and the dangers of drifting spiritually. You can find yourself in spiritual ruin. You just like wake up one day and you're like, how did I get here? And God seems really far away. And like I haven't really been pursuing him. He's not really present in my life. I don't really sense that I'm walking with him in any way, shape, or form. And a lot like the prodigal son in Luke 15, you can feel sort of like at that bottom point of like, man, there's no way I can possibly go back to God at this point. Like, There's no way a guy like me, a, a woman like me, a person like me could really go back to him. And we start to question our um, opportunity. Like, will God really give me a second chance? Like after the stuff that I've done, after the choices that I've made, after the priorities that I've put in place, man, we start to really question that. We start to really wonder, like, eh, I may be spoiled in his hand. I may be ruined, but certainly he's done with me. Certainly this was my last straw. Certainly this is it. I want to speak to that because I think that's a prevalent issue in the church. Something you may, you may call it shame. You may call it condemnation. You may even feel embarrassed. And so you feel like, man, I've blown it so bad and I'm marred. It's almost like we would rather be put out. Like, I'd rather be removed. I don't want to be in anybody's perspectives uh, seen. I just want to be invisible. And we start to condemn ourselves and believe that God is done with us. And yet, that's not the nature of God, and that's not the nature of the potter. The reason I emphasize the fact that it said it was spoiled in his hand, but not by his hand, is that it should evoke in your mind what Jesus said in John chapter 10, when he was using the uh, idea of him being the good shepherd. And he tells us in John 10, 28 and 10, 29, that those who are his, he holds in his hand and nothing can take them out of it. You're secure in his. He'll be faithful to complete that which he has begun. Isn't that Philippians 1, 6, right? The work that he has begun, he will be faithful to complete. We will make a mess of things at times. You may have made a mess of things at times. You may be in a mess. You may have completely been rebelling against God in your life. You could be entertaining sin. And in those moments, although the sin is pleasurable for a season, then it becomes really bitter. And then you become a slave to it. And then you begin to loathe yourself and hate what you're doing. And you begin to condemn yourself and think, I'm so horrible. I'm so worthless. God must certainly be done with me now. And again, after 460 years of long-suffering with these people, at this moment in time, he tells them, look, you're going to get disciplined. You're going to be chastened. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. But the, the verse in Jeremiah that often gets on everybody's coffee cup with no context is Jeremiah 29.11. Right? People love to quote Jeremiah 29.11, failing to place it in any kind of context of the prophet or what he's actually saying. So we pick it out because it's a beautiful thing in isolation to read, and it is still beautiful even in context, but the context is, is super helpful. And if you don't know it, I'll read it for you, because this is the beauty of the hope of what I'm trying to drive at here and the nature of God. Jeremiah 29, 11, you probably have heard this one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart, 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God is promising them, yes, you have rejected me. Yes, you have moved against me. Yes, you were resistant to the shaping influence of my hand upon your life. But I will restore you in the end. That's the character of a God who's redemptive, who's good, and who's kind. And that's the God we have. And I'm sharing this, and I'm reflecting even on my own life in recognition that there are times where God has had to rework, if you will, the plan of Andy's life. Because I've made bad choices, and I've made decisions that are regrettable. And yet God has been so faithful to his own promises and his own character that he has not yet discarded me. He's been faithful, and he'll be faithful to you if you're in his hand, if you're one of his own. And I want you to see this distinction because we'll explore this at the very end. But if you're in God's hand, even in the moments where you have made the worst possible decisions and you feel as though you have been sort of sidelined, if you will, God is not done with you and he is reworking you into another vessel. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with you, church. And so then he goes on, right, and he brings this application. House of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Cannot God do it? Yeah, he can. He's merciful and he's gracious. And God is forming and shaping each one of our lives. You may ask, well, what is God trying to accomplish through his forming? It's interesting, the, the scriptures speak a lot about God's making things. It tells us that he made man out of the dust of the ground in Genesis. He breathed into him the breath of life. It tells us that God formed the stars, literally, Psalms say, with his hand. I don't know if God literally uses his hand, but you know, there's no instrument in between the potter and the clay. The potter's hands are the tool by which he shapes the clay. It is direct contact. He's making it into exactly what he wants it to be. And so what is God seeking to make in each one of us. Ultimately, in a general sense, he's trying to create the character of Jesus in our life. He's trying to form us into his own image, made like his sons and daughters, exhibiting his character and glory in all things. And so God may be working on you in a specific way. The way the potter forms the vessels, he applies pressure. That's all he does. It's an act of pressure with his fingers. He squeezes his fingers a little bit tighter, and it starts to cause the clay to take a different shape. And he expands his grip and a little bit less pressure, and it takes a different shape. And again, he knows what he's creating, and he knows exactly how to get there. And he's just using simple pressure and constant revolution on a wheel. Pretty basic, pretty simple, still how they're making it. I would take the word pressure and insert the word conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction into your life. That's spiritual pressure. You're identified, something that God knows about you that maybe no one else but your closest friends or, or mate knows. And yet God brings it, and he's putting pressure there, and he's seeking to shape you. He's trying to make something there that's going to glorify and honor him. And in those moments, you have the opportunity to respond with willing obedience and yieldedness. Yes, God, I will follow your lead here. I will be shaped by you then if there's resistance, then that's when we become sort of like that marred vessel. Ultimately, I guess my point is God's not going to forsake his own. It's awesome. We were reading uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 20. 
How does the very, very last sentence of that end? Jesus says, go forth, I'll give you all authority and power to declare, make disciples, do all these things. And then what does he say? And I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. We read in Hebrews chapter 13 that God is never going to leave us or forsake us. There's a sense in which God is not forsaking us even in our lowest moments, even when we are the marred vessel, even when we are the broken pot, so to speak. We're the thing that is not what God intended. And, you know, I would also argue this. It doesn't say that the second vessel was worse than the first. It was just different. He reworked it into something else. We immediately associate the second vessel with an inferior version or something less than the best of the first one. But I don't believe that that's actually the argument. I just believe that it's different. God's like, okay, I can, I can work with you. I can work with this. Are you going to yield to me? Are you going to be pliable in my hand? Are you going to let me shape and influence and form your life? And so he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for him to do. So God will not forsake. Flip with me, if you would, to uh, a wonderful passage, Psalm 138. Back a little bit left in your Bible. Psalm 138. I'm just going to share a a few scriptures from the Psalms. The Psalms represent sort of the, uh, the songbook of the people of Israel, right? We were talking about music this morning as we were hanging out here, and, you know, where do people get their music? Where do they get their songs? What are their sources? You know, the Psalms were the hymnal of the children of Israel. This is what they sang. And it expresses uh, so much inspiration and truth. But read with me Psalm 138. It says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And what is the work of his hands? It's you and me. We have become the work of God's hand. He has brought us back to himself. It's interesting, this idea of the marring of the clay. The clay was marred in the potter's hand. And I ask myself, how is it that God is capable of redeeming that which was broken? What made it possible for a perfect, holy God to rework the vessel as it seemed good to him? Why wouldn't he just discard it? What enables him to be so merciful and so gracious? And it's the heart of the gospel. Because it tells us in Isaiah 52 that Jesus himself was marred, that he was beaten and marred, and he did so so that he could satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, so that by his stripes we could be healed. So he could bear the uh, iniquity of us all. 
Jesus suffered. Jesus took on our sin. He became sin who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus has enabled a perfect and holy and just God to rework the marred vessel into something that seemed good to him. The idea of redemption is at the core of what we're sitting here all collectively benefiting from, I pray. I pray it's true of you that you've put your faith in Christ, that you've reckoned with your own sinfulness. You've identified that, yes, I have resisted God. And yes, I have pushed away the hand of the maker and ultimately my redeemer. I've resisted those moments of pressure and conviction, and I've sought to live in sin, and I've put God at arm's length. It's not too late because you're still living and you're still here drawing breath. You have the opportunity before the Lord to say, God, I know I need your forgiveness. And through Jesus' own, if you could call it even, ruin, then his resurrection, he made a way. And because of this truth, God is steadfast in his love, and it does endure, and he therefore does not forsake the work of his hand. If you're in his hand, you're in his hand. If you're on the wheel, you're on the wheel. My advice to you and for myself, and I'm not speaking from a position of perfection, is be yielded, be obedient. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction, respond. If it's confession, confess. If it's an action, take the action. If it's a discipline, engage that discipline. It's simple stuff in the mundane reality. It's not in the big show and in the big glorious you know, pursuits. It's in those simple things. And if you've fallen short, and in your heart you know you have, if you feel like you've made a mess of things, the beauty is we get to exalt in the greatness of a merciful and gracious God who has not discarded you. It's so important for us to anchor our heart in the truth of this is who God is. This is his heart. You go with me to another psalm. If we're going to kick around the psalms, Psalm 100. Perhaps you know this one by heart because it's a really short one and it's probably been taught to you at some point in time. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Notice, it is he who made us and we are his. It could also be translated, and we didn't make ourselves, not we ourselves. We're not self-made. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We'll go one more, 145. I'm taking you left, right, back and forth. It's good for us all. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The title of the psalm is Great is the Lord. And the first verse is, I will extol you, my God and King. The word extol means to make great, to elevate, to make large. And he goes on in verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. I think the point is clear, I hope. If you're sitting here, we're collectively staring at these passages and my hope and prayers that we would simply anchor ourselves in this truth that the things that the psalmist wrote, the image that Jeremiah is painting for us as he's recording what he saw and what God told him was being revealed in that observation. 
is that he's a God who is gracious and long-suffering, and his love is steadfast. He's a God who is the God of not just the second chance, but the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and on down the line. Romans tells us that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's literally no sin hole that you can dig so deep that God cannot pull you out of it. You just have to be willing to be pulled out of it. If you're still holding a shovel in your hand, you're probably not ready. If you're still digging down into your, into your pursuits, you're probably still resisting the hand of your maker. But if you've started to recognize that, like the prodigal, man, I've blown it. My life is in disarray. Know that when you come, you come boldly to a throne of grace, to a God who can identify with you, who took on flesh, in my view, much the same way the potter becomes covered in clay. And he took the cross so that we could become reconciled to God once again. And so if you're feeling a little bit down, if you feel like maybe you've missed the mark, if you feel a bit disposable, God's not done with you. He's still at work. You're still on the wheel. And it's not all gloom and doom, because when you're yielded, the shaping influence of God is actually really wonderful. Fascinating, I think it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says that he makes all things ultimately beautiful in his time. It just takes time. We're all in process here. Some of us look like a little bit better pieces of clay than others. And um, that's not an insult to anybody, I'm just saying. And um, you're at different stages of Christ being formed in you. And your life is going on day by day by day by day. And so when we fellowship together, when we're here breaking bread, when we're here praying, hopefully with each other and for each other, when we're here seeking to do the will of God and bringing his kingdom to bear in our life, just know that there is a tremendously gracious and long-suffering God who's at work in your life. You may not necessarily always feel it, you may not be aware of it, but he is at work and he's holding you in his hand and he will complete that which he has begun in you and he will bring you to perfection one day. So let's pray. Let's anchor our heart in this. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your word. Thank you, God, that you are so gracious. Lord, I pray that the grace by which you have brought us to yourself would not be old and stale in our thoughts, but, Lord, your greatness would be greater and greater and greater in our hearts and minds. Lord, may the awe of our redemption never be small to us. Lord, may we never just lose sight of how beautiful and wonderful it is that you've remade us. God, I'm here because you took the cross for me. That, Lord, I was living as a rebel and an enemy of yours, and yet while I was a, still a sinner, you died for me. And, Lord, even now as I've sought to be faithful, and I know many in this room are seeking to follow you, Lord, and walk with you, Lord, we still make a mess of things at times. Lord, we are at times a vessel that's marred in your hand, but, Lord, thank God we're in your hand and that, Jesus, you've not let us go, and you're working so that your perfect heavenly vision will be brought to bear upon our lives. May we reflect your glory, Lord, and live out that which you have planned for us, Lord. We are your workmanship, prepared to good works that you have already established. Lord, we are so grateful that you have not given up on us. Lord, I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters this week, Lord. I pray as they go from here and they go about their life that the dailiness of the Monday through Sunday Lord, that you would be present in their thoughts and they'd be aware of your leading and working. Pray this in your name. Amen.